Namo tassa makavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa pakavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa pakavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This is the last reading for this winter retreat period. This is the continuation of uh, the Dhamma talk entitled The Sense of Timelessness. And this was given uh, by Lumpur Sumato at the Leicester Summer School on the 3rd of August 2004. It is very common in Thailand and Sri Lanka, I don't know about Burma, to have strong views about practice. In Thailand, which I'm more familiar with, there are many different techniques and ways of teaching Vipassana and Samatha Vipassana. So you get different cults and groups forming, which tend to criticize each other. And this can be confusing. Naturally, I prefer my style because that's what I've learned from. That's what I've done, and when I teach, I teach from what I know. I can share that. If I put it in the context of my way being better than somebody else's, however, then that will be misleading. Somebody might actually believe me. (laughs) It isn't a matter of one technique being better than another. It's how you use a technique or tradition that is important. For me, it's a matter of using the monastic discipline, or the tranquility and insight, Samatha Vipassana teachings, or the Four Noble Truths, for awareness, and not for holding to opinions and preferences. I see this as the way of breaking out of the limitation of self and realizing that the self-view, the sense of myself, is always formed through identifying with some kind of limitation. This uh, um, is a a significant point. I don't know how many times people, uh, I mean, uh, I sit in the sala and people come up and and, uh, talk. And so you're kind of in the position of being a religious authority. (laughs) So, So naturally, people look at you as a, a religious authority and a kind of answering machine, and they, they come up uh, and say, what should I do? Am I doing the right thing? Um, and uh, <clears throat> is, this, uh, is, this, is this good or is this bad? Is this right or is this wrong? And uh, so over and over and over and over again, I say, well, it's not a matter of the technique or the method or the particular meditation practice. It's how you use it. And I say, well, I don't know you. you know, I don't know how you're you're using this particular kind of meditation. I don't, I, uh, I don't know how you're applying it. So it's going to vary from one person to another. And so uh, it, it's extremely common that people assume there is a right way to be doing things, that there is this, this magical formula. If I follow this, then, then I'm doing the right thing, and I'll get the good result. And, and I think there's a strong conditioning that we have from our, our schools, our education system, and the society that, that tells us like that, you know, if we if we just join the dot, the dots up in the correct way, then we'll get the we'll get the right picture, and then we'll be happy. Uh, but um, the uh, uh, the emphasis that uh, you have in Buddha Dhamma, and also that Lumpur Sumedha is making the point here, it isn't a matter of one technique being better than another. It's how you use a technique or tradition that's important. So you might have an absolutely wonderful technique. Um, that is extremely effective, 
But if you use it with a um, uh, an unskillful attitude, like uh, you want to be better than everybody else, or you want to um, <clears throat> say you feel that you're a really kind of evil person and you've got to wipe out the the evil through uh, through uh, say purifying your mind, and so you set up a whole different mindset, then it can be a, a, on one level it can be a really effective technique, it can be something that's, that's genuinely useful. But the the whole way that it's being picked up and applied can be creating more and more complication and more stress and difficulty. And so that uh, over and over again, when I say, well, it depends on how you use it. <laughs> it depends on uh, on uh, the uh, the way you apply it. So uh, uh, just uh, uh, I think they, yesterday someone was asking me that very question. I said, well, it, it's like anything. It's like using a, a knife in the kitchen. You can use it to chop up carrots or you can use it to cut yourself you know it's it's a, it's a knife it's just a tool but how you use it and, and the way you apply it is, is going to make a difference and so i feel that that's uh something in that it's, <laughs> it's uh really important to to as uh, a bring uh to to mind whether we're a sort of a uh a sort of professional practitioner of meditation or uh one who's just been newly introduced to it or how long we've been doing it for to to not be say um focused just on the on the method because it's it's not uh solely the method that's the important thing it's always how we apply it how we use it moment by moment the decision the decisions that we make around the application of that method moment by moment that's what makes a difference just like driving a car or or um uh or using a knife so i said i think actually the example i gave yesterday was you know, driving a car, you, you, know, you get in the car and you can, it can help you to drive from here to, to London or Birmingham and get where you want to go uh, successfully, or you can get out on the road and cause chaos. You can crash into other people, you can injure yourself, and cause all kinds of confusion and difficulty. So meditation is just a vehicle. So it's all down to how you use the vehicle, uh, the, your moment-by-moment -moment, uh, application of what is needed to make the vehicle do the job it's intended for then it can be really helpful. So that sense of taking responsibility for how you use meditation and the, and the teachings, that's a, 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 a crucial piece because we can easily get sort of, um, not exactly enslaved, but we, we can be, um, say, out of a, a misguided sense of sincerity. Well, I'm supposed to do it this way. Well, this is what the book said, or, or the agent said I should. So we're being kind of a good student, <laughs> Which is which we're being sincere and trying hard, but in that we're so in uh, abdicating, we're stepping down from our own natural, uh, say, response, responsivity and responsibility. We're not using our own common sense. We're faithfully following the method, and so that the uh, that a aspect of personal responsibility or, or using your own wisdom is say, well, is this working, or you know, am I really getting where I want to go, or? Uh, where, where's all this? Where's all this blood come from? Oh right, I'm holding the wrong end of the knife. Aha! <laughs> That's why it hurts. That's why there's a mess all over the kitchen floor. Aha! So that um, uh, really can't be overemphasized. So that sincerity is a good thing, uh, commitment and, uh, and diligence, um, being faithful, being sincere, uh, trying hard. These are all good things. But we, uh, it's a mistake to be too subservient to the system. The system is there for the humans. The humans aren't there for the system. So we can be 
faithfully following the system as if the system was more important than us, but the system's only there for us. <laughs> it's like uh, all of the traditions and customs of, of Theravada Buddhism. When we look at personality, when we examine and investigate it, we can see that it is totally based on the limitations of memory, views, opinions, preferences, fears, desires, and habits. So, the personality is not a living thing. It comes through conditions arising. In awareness, we no longer trust it, no longer believe in it or identify with it. Awareness transcends the personality, and through that we see what the personality is in terms of experience. If we try to claim awareness, it's lost again. If you say, I am the awareness, or I am awareness, or awareness is mine, that's what it means. If we try to claim awareness, it's lost again. We've deluded ourselves. It's not a matter of it being some kind of personal ability or achievement that we've attained after all these years. Rather, it's a natural state, our very nature, uncreated, independent of conditions. Wherever we are, whatever the conditions, no condition precludes awareness. It is therefore our refuge. It's where we find our liberation. In the Theravada, words like Arahant, Nibbana, or even Sotapanna, stream entry, are defined as extreme positions. They're held to be great attainments. When you try to contemplate them with your thinking mind, when you're attached to thinking as your way of experiencing life, you're forced into some kind of limitation, because your thinking mind is dualistic. Nibbana, from the position of the conditioned mind, can only be something very high, something which seems almost unobtainable. Reading about such things too much without ever practicing them will therefore make you think that they are, they are impossibilities. Even stream entry will seem unattainable because it just sounds too complicated, too difficult. This is why it's important to reflect on your thought process. What is the function of thinking? How should you use it? How should you, you use it for awareness? so that it, it is a tool rather than something that limits you, something that blocks you, and binds you to these dualistic, divisive creations. The Buddha made very clear statements about Nibbāna being reality, about it not being an attainment. To put it simply, we can say it means the reality of non-grasping. Grasping is what we are involved with. The unaware, unenlightened individual is conditioned to grasp things, then be born into them and then be limited by those grasping habits. In that case, one blindly grasps just out of habit, not knowing any other way of dealing with life. As we awaken, however, we see the suffering of that grasping. We have to know what it is first, though we have to really experience what suffering is as a result of grasping. It isn't a matter of experience suffering through some ascetic obsession, but just recognizing what it is in very simple ways. Just recognizing it in feelings of loneliness, sadness, anxiety, or worry about even relatively minor experiences that make our lives quite unpleasant. We create these conditions through not underst understanding grasping. So when we realize the suffering of grasping, we can let it go. Then the reality of non-grasping is known. That is what we call Nibbāna. Does that sound like a very high state? It isn't refined. It isn't like going into the heavenly realms of bliss. It isn't dependent on conditions being very refined or very special. So this, uh, this uh, term, or this phrase, the reality of non-grasping, when Lumpur Chah was asked to define Nibbāna, that's how, uh, how he would describe it. 
in, in exactly the, those uh, exactly those words the reality of non grasping, so that the um, uh, the attention then goes to the the habit of grasping, and uh, and pointing to that as a sort of the essence of what we're doing with with uh, the practice of dhamma and the, the process of of awakening. Also, another of the comments that Lumpur Chah would make is that until you really know the, the, the suffering that comes from grasping, you won't let go. So having a, a voice of a, of a kind of respected person saying, you should let go, <laughs> or having the, uh, a logical explanation saying, this is painful because you're holding on, therefore you should let go, then that doesn't work either. It, uh, it's, a, uh, it's only when we really know the pain of attachment, then there's a letting go. And it, so it's not even coming from a "I should let go" or, or a, a sort of a a, a a kind of command from our thoughts uh, or obeying an instruction, but rather, uh, as I was saying to somebody earlier today, how it's when uh, the the attitude of the heart just shifts on its own, like ah, <laughs> I've had enough of this. And it more like it falls off. So renunciation isn't really giving anything up. It's just where it falls off on its own, like a, a, a leaf falling off the, the uh, a tree in the autumn, or when the magnolias have done their their blossoming, the, the petals just drop off, and and uh, they've done their bit. So boom, they just they just fall. And so it's uh, through that direct acknowledgement of the pain of attachment that's when letting go happens. So it's not. Uh, a, a forced or a, a technical process, but rather through that direct acknowledgement of of the painfulness that's coming from that attachment. So, in terms of of dharma practice, when uh, talking about this, particularly with meditating on emotion, if you're looking at say you're really obsessed with someone, that you're really attached to someone that you like, and you're worried that they're going to go away, or what it's going to be like when they die, or or what's going to happen when you're left alone, and or if you're really irritated with someone, you can't stand them being around you, you're upset with them and you hate them. And, uh, and so that then the attention goes to the person that you love or the person that you hate and the, the characteristics that are out there. And so in order to meditate effectively or to work with that kind of attachment, grasping effectively, what I always encourage is to, to, to look at that feeling of, of wanting or of wanting to be close or fearing of that the loss of someone or or the feeling of aversion and to make it as wordless as possible the the to feel that in the heart to feel in the body wherever that 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 holding or that that owning um is felt or that sense of aversion hatred that that kind of harshness is felt to to know that as directly as possible with with as little commentary <laughs> And as in a, and as direct and non-verbal a way as possible. So, uh, and many of you will have heard me talking about this different times, different different retreats or different dhamma talks. But uh, this is my experience: is that the more that it's just "ow," <laughs> that's all you need. Is just this hurts, <laughs> and you don't have to have a "I shouldn't do this because" or "I've had enough of this, therefore I should really let go" or "Haven't you ever learned your lesson by now?" All of that is extra. It's just the the sheer ow of of uh, um, when I am uh, af- afraid of losing this person that that I love, or I'm, I have to be with this person that I, that I I don't love. Then 
there's that that feeling is there and the more that that is is known in an unfiltered non-verbal non-conceptual way then the more there is that natural <laughs> falling away that this just like uh, and the example that uh, Lumpur Cha would would use often would be like a if there's a red hot iron ball in it the, the the thinking mind will try and find a cool place on it <laughs> but it's it's hot everywhere everywhere you touch it is hot and so uh, if you recognize ow it's hot then then uh, yeah you won't hang on to it you'll you'll drop it so i feel that in terms of nibbana coolness that uh, the reality of of non grasping it's uh, in a way noticing the quality of grasping the painfulness that comes from that then allowing that ha- to have its own impact and when that that grasping fades and falls away then rather than getting lost oh this is great fantastic i finally got away from that <laughs> getting lost in the excitement that that's ended or or just being busy with the next thing to uh, again fully notice be fully uh, aware of Okay, now the grasping has stopped. How does this feel? What is the nature of the heart free of grasping? Because, uh, as again, as Lumpur Sumedha would often say, and uh, in the reading yesterday or the day before, he was saying, yeah, peace is boring. Non-attachment is boring. It doesn't grab our attention. So in that moment of, ah, oh, thank goodness that's over, then you have two or three seconds of, ah, Okay, what's next? And then we start hunting for another interesting thing to have, uh, to eat or to have an opinion about or to run away from or to be afraid of or whatever. Um, so once the grasping has stopped, and, and usually when I'm giving meditation instruction, this is something I'll, I'll emphasize, is to notice when the grasping fades, what is present? What's the nature of the heart free of grasping? It, and you, it, the you need to make an effort. There needs to be an effort to sustain the attention on that because space, silence, peace, stillness is not attention-grabbing. It's not interesting. It isn't... The, like the, the clock is more interesting than the space next to the clock. The book is more interesting than the space next to the book. <laughs> but that space doesn't have any information. It's got no words associated with it. The words are here. It goes to where the words are. So space, silence, stillness, non-grasping is not exciting. It's not interesting. It doesn't mean to say that it's bad, but just that it takes effort to sustain attention on that. But when we do, and this is what uh, Lumpur Sumedha would emphasize around the third noble truth, Dukkha Niroda needs to be realized, Sachikata Bhanti, in the Dhammachaka Sutta, needs to be realized so that when the heart really appreciates that quality of, of not grasping, rather than just being an absence of interesting things, it's, it opens to that, and then it knows a, a genuine and profound peacefulness and clarity. <sighs> Which is not just an absence of, uh, of things, but there's a, it's a real awakening to Dhamma itself. The heart awakens to that, that quality. And so that um, that... Uh, is part of that as a as a practice uh, and and dealing with with letting go of suffering is that your know, nibbana needs to be realized. And it's also interesting that um, the uh, in the uh, discourse called the exposition of the elements, 
which is um, Sutta number 140 in the Majima, the Buddha says Nibbana is the, is the supreme noble truth. So actually there's five noble truths, not four. So Nibbana is the supreme noble truth. He makes, he's, he makes that comment in that particular sutta. So that, that, uh, <clears throat> that the truthfulness or the reality of that, uh, that, say, that quality of peacefulness and its, its substantiality, its, kind of, its, its reality, is something that is known, can be known when the grasping stops. Every day in the monastery we chant Sanditiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko. Apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation. Akaliko Dhamma means timeless. What, in terms of right now, is timeless? It isn't a matter of thinking about timelessness or trying to decide whether there is such a thing or not. It's a question of learning to trust yourself, to recognize, to value your own ability to be aware right now. That might not seem very much, in terms of how you think, maybe, or your conditioned habits. The worldly mind thinks in terms of attaining something, stream entry or arahantship, some qualification like a PhD. In terms of awareness, however, attaining doesn't make sense. You don't attain awareness. You recognize it. It's a natural state of being that is recognized through receiving this moment without trying to control it or limit it irrespective of whether this moment is pleasant or unpleasant, wanted or unwanted. Our culture believes in definitions, words, identities and time as reality. That's why this investigation is encouraged. What is time in terms of right now? It seems so obvious that there is only here and now. Tomorrow, yesterday, where are they right now? I can remember coming here yesterday, but that's a memory now. And tomorrow, who knows? I just don't know. But there is a knowing of not knowing. There is an unwillingness to project some definite thing onto the potential. I'm willing to not know. I'm willing to not know, however, because that's the way it is. It isn't a question of trying to fool myself into having some kind of false guarantee about the future. Liberation comes through the realization that knowing not knowing is like this. The future is the unknown. I think that Buddhists, like anyone else, are quite good at grasping conventions, even though the teaching is about non-grasping. Non-grasping is built into Buddhism. Grasping things in order to investigate them and to see the result of attachment is one thing, but the reality, the deathless reality and timelessness, is recognized through awareness. And in terms of language, the deathless is a negation, isn't it? It's a double negative. Death is a kind of negative, and less is a negative. Then we have unconditioned, unborn, uncreated. Notice that rather than trying to create an image of deathlessness, or trying to create an immortal god, or anything like that, the Buddha used the negation of language, unborn, uncreated to express the reality of his experience. Psychologically, you can't imagine the unborn, because it isn't a thing, is it? Try to imagine the unborn. My mind goes blank. No image comes. Unborn, uncreated. Just a blank nothingness. It can actually sound like annihilation or nihilism, but that's only because of the limitation of language. 
But also when uh, Lumpur was here in December and was giving Dhamma talks, this was a a, uh, a frequent uh, a frequent theme. Also, he would speak in that same way about about Dhamma. So he tried to create an image of Dhamma. He says, "My mind goes blank," <laughs> and uh, I feel it's it's very skillful in terms of of his teaching. How he's uh, he's happy to say that, and I think it's very helpful to say, you know, the mind can't create an image of unborn, because our senses, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, they are geared to the born or the formed or the created. That they are built around detecting things that begin and end. That's what they're for. That's how the sense world works. And so that uh, <coughs> acknowledging that when we're talking about something that's unborn or uncreated or unconditioned, it's kind of outside of that. It's like it's on a different wavelength to what our eyes can perceive. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole different. A whole different dimension. So that uh, when when he says you know, the the mind can't uh, create an image, then it, uh, that I would say that's not a weakness, but rather that's a a skillful reflection. Of course, the, the idea the mind can create the idea of the unconditioned. Yeah, I really like the unconditioned. It's really important. Yeah, I'm really inspired by that. But it's taking an idea and then latching onto the idea, and so that. That I feel this is a, a very helpful, skillful way to speak about letting the indescribable be undescribed, <laughs> and not trying to squish it into a, a, our, our habits of thinking in three-dimensional space and, and colors and forms and sounds and, and such like. Any questions, thoughts, reflections on that? Yes, there's a. The Buddha says the Nibbana is the supreme noble truth. That's his word. Well, he didn't say it in English, but you know, <laughs> it's in the it's in that Sutta, Sutta, uh, the exposition of the elements. The third noble truth is Dukkha Niroda. Nibbana itself is not mentioned in the third noble truth. Niroda is. You can say, well, Niroda, Nibbana. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> but uh, technically, that, that's the comment that the Buddha makes. It says, Nibbana is the supreme noble truth. So he's actually putting it above the other four in that comment. Uh, people have probably written PhDs about that. But uh, that's a very, that, that particular sutta's got a lot in it. Uh, it's a very rich sutta. But that's one comment that stands out within them. Yeah, Ajahn Sundra, you had a thing. Oh. <laughs> it's called the Exposition of the Elements, the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. It's the one where the uh, the Buddha shares, uh, the Buddha is wandering by himself, and he goes to stay for the night in the in the, the shed at a potter's house, and he's sharing the 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 room. With another wanderer, Pukusati, and then they uh, <clears throat> they start talking, and Pukusati says, "I'm I'm a disciple of the Buddha Gotama," and then the Buddha says, "Oh, really? <laughs> so so what does he teach?" You know, and they have this conversation, and Pukusati doesn't realize that he's actually sharing a room with the Buddha. So that's a, a, a kind of a 
a significant encounter in the in the Dhamma teachings, and then uh, then the uh, what happens is that after a time, Pukusati asks this other wanderer who's in the room with him, saying, "So, what is it that you practice? What is it that you teach?" And then he starts to speak, and about halfway through the Dhamma talk, he realizes, "I think I know who I'm sharing this room with." <laughs> So then he apologizes for being so casual and for addressing the Buddha as friend and kind of so he immediately sort of hits him. didn't mean to be rude and, and disrespectful, but uh, I just realized who I'm, who you are and uh, and then the Buddha is talking about the um the datu you know the uh, earth water fire and wind also consciousness and and uh, emptiness uh in that uh, in that particular sutta so it's quite extensive and in that he talks about um he makes that comment that Nibbāna is the supreme noble truth. Sutta 140, Majjhima I, I only know it well because it's the basis of that story, the Pilgrim Karmanita, which I edited and produced a copy of. So that's, I, I, I couldn't tell you what Sutta 139 or 141 are. Yes? About the, uh, the Nibbāna Sutta that we chant here, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's like if you're in jail and there's nothing other in the universe, nothing, nothing else in the universe except for the jail, you can never get out of jail because that's all there is. But if there's a possibility of not being in jail, then it means that you you can be outside of the jail. You can be you can be free. So what it's saying is that um, <clears throat> the world that is generally experienced. Uh, the the uh, originator, the creator, the formed, the born. Um, uh, that is the, the the familiar world of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Yeah. And if that was all there was, if that was the only reality, then there would be no possible possibility of liberation from that. The liberation from birth and death would be impossible. It's like if the prison is the only thing that exists in the world you can never be out of prison because that's all that exists. There's no other possibility. But it's saying because there is the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, um, there is life outside the prison. There is a different dimension of reality. Uh, Therefore, uh, freedom is possible from the born, the originated, the created, and the formed. So that uh, it's in in um, in the forest tradition that Teaching is uh, really the linchpin of the practice. When when Lumpo Cha was a young monk and met with uh, Lumpu Man, um, and the, when he's talking about those those three days that he was together with him, he's, he said on the, the third evening, if I remember correctly, on the third evening that uh, Lumpu Man was giving the, the teachings, that was the point that he made that really uh, struck the young Ajahn Chah very, very deeply, was that as he said, you know, the quality of, of awareness, the quality of knowing is intrinsically separate from the known. That the puru, the, that quality of awareness, is, is, uh, is distinct and apart from the objects of awareness. If that, was not, if that was not the case, then liberation would be impossible. Because that is the case, liberation is therefore possible. So that was a real sort of light bulb 
coming on moment for, for the young Ajahn Chah. And so that he, and something in him just knew that was true. And thought, okay, that's, I can trust that. that that's, that's how it works. And so then that was a real clear guideline for his, for his practice from that time. Okay, what needs to be done is to help uh, to work with the mind so that that awareness can be trained to separate, it, separate itself from the objects of awareness. Uh, you keep it simple when you say that, like you live, we live in a Buddha, but we can't escape from it. Yes. But looking more development, like more openness, and uh, why? Well, it's good news that you can get out of prison. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> like more activities, but the sutta make it like uh, more developed. Because of the uh, I'm not. Yeah, he, well, the Buddha is making this declaration, ajatang abutang akatang asankatang, and that the that the language that, that is used, you, as you're probably aware, the verb to be ati is different from the usual verb to be. So if I say you are tandipako, that you would use hot, the verb hoti for that. That's what, who you are. That's your name. You are, you are a, uh, a, a a human being. So you'd use the verb hoti for that. So when it's referring to a reality that is transcendent or timeless and such like, then a different verb to be is used, which is ati, not hoti. So ati is a, a quality of being that is outside of time, that is referring to that, you know, the, that, uh, say, the transcendent reality. So it's ati bikawe ajatang abutang akatang asankatang. So that that uh, is a, uh, a different... It's, in the very language, it indicates a different mode. And the Buddha doesn't use that very often, but it's used for those kind of uh, declarations about um, that, say, the, the unconditioned or the transcendent quality of, of, of Dhamma. Does that make sense? Yes. But it's good to ask. But the... the um, uh, I think that, and one of the reasons why that's we, we chant that is because that's one of Lumpur Sumedho's favorite teachings, and and it was sort of he asked that we include that, and so we then put it together as a chant in English and in Pali uh, because he that so much embodies the sort of the very as you can say the like the linchpin or the the axis of the Dhamma practice, and that that's why liberation is possible because you know the the own the, the reality of the sense world is not the only reality. And often the, the Buddha is not making those kind of declarations about what's beyond our ordinary physical senses. Most of the teaching is focused on the path and the practice in, in, in so how to arrive at that realization. But once in a while he does make these, what you would call a metaphysical statement. Do you know that word? Be- metaphysical means beyond the physical or beyond uh, that which is transcending uh, the ordinary world of, of form, that which is invisible or intangible. So it's also interesting that um, uh, the Western philosopher Wittgenstein, that he, his sort of famous um, treatise finished with uh, the words, um, 
whatever cannot be uh, whatever cannot be spoken of the mind must necessarily pass over that uh, and so he meant uh, apparently that uh, you know if you can't speak about it you can't conceive it but he didn't mean that it's not important <laughs> but he got interpreted as as uh, as meaning um that uh, if you can't speak about it it has no value or it's not important but that apparently that's not what he meant and that uh, it was this, uh, it was a kind of finale or the sort of denouement of his of that thesis was Vovan man nicht sprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. Excuse my bad German translation, my pronunciation. It kind of rhymes as well. So whatever, you, so that if you can't talk about it, it doesn't matter. It's not important. But apparently, what he meant was that's the only really important thing <laughs> is what we can't talk about. And so this teaching on the unconditioned, the unformed, it's like you can't really describe it. You can't use. Are ordinary three-dimensional terms and, and uh, time and space and and uh, <coughs> the the reference points of of the sense world to describe it, but it is the most important thing, <laughs> even though it's not really a thing. <laughs> but I feel that Lumpur Sumato addresses this very very skillfully, and that it's quite powerful for someone who's got such a a, a, a reputation as being a, a wise and uh, uh, awakened teacher saying that um, my mind goes blank. You know, when I try to create an image, my mind goes blank. I feel that's really helpful. <laughs> so that it's not a weakness that your mind, I can't figure out the unconditioned. Yes, correct. <laughs> Good. Good. Just leave it that way. <laughs> Rather than, if I just did some more thinking, I could figure it out. Like, no, it's, it's an encouragement to, to let the, the spacious be spacious. So to continue, the reality of non-attachment is recognized by exploring attachment, by becoming aware of the unsatisfactoriness and unhappiness we create through grasping. It is then that we let go. Non-attachment, Nibbana, the path, the way of non-suffering, the way of awareness, mindfulness, is then known. It is direct knowing, and letting go is realized. This is a knowledge which is no longer based on concepts or ideas, and it's very simple. It's also very subtle, because this is taking everything to cessation. There is, however, a strong resistance to that. The closer we get to that point of cessation, it seems, the more rampant our desires become. There is a sense of fear and terror that, I'm going to die, I don't want to die, I want to live, I want to experience life, I want to enjoy, rejoice. And then we get back into thinking that we have to seek happiness in the world because we want the things we don't have and we're afraid of losing everything. So, that, so there might be a sense of sadness or even grief in meditation because a lot of the things that we let go of are very nice. We're fond of them. But if we trust our awareness, the sadness also ceases. And what is left is what? What do you call it? Is there a name for it? It is to be realized, each one for ourselves. We call it the deathless, or the unconditioned. And that's simply because we have to call it something. Years ago, when I was in Berkeley, California, I went to see the Christian monk, Father B. Griffiths, who was staying in the Korean Zen Center at the time. He'd had a stroke and was lying in bed, looking very joyful, actually, with his rosy cheeks and white beard. He smiled when I entered his room and said, I had a stroke and I lost my memory. 
Thank goodness. <laughs> He's got this very sort of pucker English public school accent. So I had a stroke, lost my memory. Thank goodness. He looked overjoyed. His intellect was brilliant, and he obviously understood what had happened to him, but he wasn't frightened. Other people are often terrified when it happens to them, but he wasn't. And uh, I remember there was a, um, uh, an interview with him on the radio, uh, the, the local public radio in, in Berkeley around that time. And they were asking him about that. Uh, and he said, well, yeah, he'd written all of these books, these sort of these authoritative treatises about Christianity and Buddhism and contemplative life and about the Upanishads and the Vedas and the, and the Desert Fathers. And he said, now it's all gone. It's marvelous. And then he said, uh, as long as I can remember where I left my sandals, you know, <laughs> then I'm, I'm okay. You know, which, uh, if I can just remember which door, you know, where I left my sandals, all the rest is extra. And he was serious. He, he really meant it. And I think it's a sign of great wisdom that someone who did have a massive intellect and had written all kinds of, of books and treatises and been a sort of expert, knowledgeable person, that because of his wisdom as a contemplative and he really trained his, his, his mind, and developed his, his spiritual practice, then when those mental faculties were gone, he didn't experience it as a loss. It was like, thank goodness I donn't have to bother with that anymore. Or just like I was talking with, with Lumpur um, on the phone, uh, Lumpur Sumedho, a couple of months ago, and I and, uh, was saying you know, about his sort of increasing disabilities, you know, his difficulty with walking, and his vision going, and his hearing going, and... And, and in exactly the same way, he says, well, it gives me a really good, ex good excuse to say no to a lot of things. Yeah. It was, he, so he, he was, wasn't just sort of bravely looking on the bright side, but it was like, yeah, it's great. I got, I got a fantastic excuse. You know, I'm 84 years old. I can't really walk very well, can't see very well, can't hear very well. So I've got the perfect excuse to say no to what kinds of things I don't want to bother with. So it was a, a very lovely. He didn't sort of say, oh, yeah, I've got to lean on Ajahn Ahsoka all the time, and it's so embarrassing, and I'm so weak. Shred. It's just, yeah, this is great. I don't have to bother with anything. <laughs> I was invited to a conference in Gloucestershire not so long ago, which was all about dealing with spiritual crises. There were therapists, psychiatrists, and counsellors there talking about mindfulness, because this word mindfulness seemed to be the main topic of interest, which I thought was very good. The way to liberate the mind is through mindfulness or awareness. And this is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. This is the important one. It isn't that people in general are never mindful of always, or always heedless and ignorant. But speaking for myself, it never meant anything to me in the past. It wasn't raised up as anything significant. I'd be mindful under certain circumstances, but I didn't really know what mindfulness was. I was just that way because conditions were there for it. And in life-endangering situations, I would be particularly mindful. People would ask me afterwards, were you frightened? And I would say, no, I was very mindful. It wasn't that I had trained myself to be that way. It was just that I was naturally alert on those occasions. It just happened as part of life preservation instinct. We didn't call it mindfulness, of course, and it wasn't appreciated even though it had happened. After developing meditation over the years, however, I began to recognize and understand the power of it, rather than just seeing it as a technique, or as a, a way to gain some limited state. 
Psychotherapy gives a forum for talking about things that you would not perhaps talk about in other circumstances. It can be quite useful for allowing fears to become conscious, especially the darker aspects of the psyche. You can't talk to just anybody about these things because you need someone who will listen to you without making judgments or giving advice, so that having that, fa- that facility can initially be quite useful as a skillful means. But if that process becomes addictive, you can get too interested in yourself as a person. In meditation, on the other hand, you don't find your personality that interesting after a while. I can see as a result of teaching here all these years that Western Buddhists don't have a lot of confidence or faith in Buddhism or in themselves. Some problems people face, and I can relate to this myself, are the results of having developed a critical mind. My tendency is to criticize myself, and that destroys any sense of real respect for my own ability to be aware and use wisdom. The critical faculty takes over and sends out messages like, you don't know what you're talking about. Who do you think you are? How dare you assume this or that? Even after years of meditation and commitment, people might feel that they just can't do it. This seems to be a common problem. My conditioning was a combination of Christianity, modern science, and rational thinking. Reason and logic in my culture has been raised to such a level that it was the ultimate human attainment. So I gave a lot of importance to doubt and criticism, dwelling on what was wrong, on the faults and flaws within myself, the people around me, and the world. Asian monks, because there's such a strong cultural base to their experience of Buddhism, seem to have a stability that we don't have. The sadha, or faith aspect, is part of their cultural conditioning, whereas it wasn't part of mine. Their culture isn't based on making you feel guilty, whilst we can't even seem to accept our basic human drives without feeling guilty about them. This is where we're dealing with cultural conditioning. It's quite complicated. In Thailand, they're just as likely to say, well, of course, greed, hatred, and delusion are part of everyone's life. These things are natural. They have a kind of cultural acceptance, which is not approving, but recognizes that this is the way we are. Because of our conditioning, however, we might say, I shouldn't feel hatred, I feel angry, and I shouldn't. This is what I call neuroses. Our tendency is to complicate the issue, because not only do we have the anger, we also have the fear, resentment, and guilt around it. So this uh, point that uh, Lumpur was making at the beginning of that, about how uh, the the closer you get to cessation and letting go, then the more that the... uh, the, the kind of life preservative instinct can, can ramp up and like, you know, I don't want to die, I want to live, I want to experience life. That, uh, that's a, a very common experience and so that sometimes uh, uh, people find that having had a profound insight to their, to their surprise, they immediately find themselves walking to, the, walking to the fridge or the larder or falling in love with somebody. It's like, how did this happen? I just had this great profound insight into the emptiness of all things and, and I got my my hand in the, uh, in the chocolate pot. What? what? How? Huh? What? And so it, uh, it's a... Um, uh, not a I'm not reading anybody's mind. Keeping track of anyone in the fridge. But uh, it, it, can, uh, it can be that way, that the, the sort of self-preservative instincts can circumvent, they kind of go around our, uh, our wisdom and our insight. And that those that that urge to be to to have some sort of defined 
existence is, is extremely strong and if we really want to train our hearts it's one of the things that uh, spiritual friendship and the life in the sangha and companionship having spiritual friends makes a big difference to that you can have that support when you uh, you do lose your way and, and those um, sort of self-preservative ego-preservative um, reactions uh, sort of take uh, take shape and uh, it, it's a uh, uh, say it's an important thing to again as Lumpur was saying at the end to not take that personally it's like how oh, can I do this this is really stupid I had such a wonderful retreat and you know, now I've been really stupid and indulgent and I really lost it you know how could this happen I'm a terrible person you know, the, the mind can make a whole story out of it rather than seeing that's a natural result when Mara is threatened <laughs> like the Buddha sitting, sitting down under the Bodhi tree saying I'm not going to move from this spot until full enlightenment is realized, that's what brings the armies of Mara to, to play. That's, that's a mythological expression of what happens when, when each one of us or sits down to meditate or when, um, when there, there is that, a clear insight or a clear say, uh, selflessness and such like, then it can initiate the whole attack, a sort of multiple hindrance attack, where you can be restless and dull and lustful and aversive all at the same time. Yeah, that this is, it, it all kicks in, rather like the armies of Mara, the attractive, the, the threatening, the the, uh, <clears throat> the demanding, all of that can just kind of come come wading in. So that's not personal; that's a natural process. So it's helpful to have teachings and spiritual companions around to help remind us of that, because we we do take it very very personally, and that uh, uh, many of us who've who've lived in Asia or been born and grown up in Asia uh, will have had that sense of the contrast between the um, the appreciation of our limitations as human beings, our weaknesses, our, our, our impulses as being part of the natural order and and also in the West how we do take it uh, very, very personally. So like we uh, often relate to anger or, or lust or, or, uh, or um greed and jealousy as if as if we'd invented that you know the anger didn't exist in the world until we came along like that, that there's a you know there's this angry feeling it's like i'm so angry it's terrible i can't i shouldn't be this way uh, and it's ridiculous when you say that i mean who of us really thinks that we invented anger or jealousy it's crazy but subjectively it can feel that way that I'm an angry person. I have this horrible, angry feeling. This horrible kind of jealous hatred, and I, and I shouldn't be here. This isn't this isn't how I should be because we've we're, we're taking an ideal image of ourselves, how the perfect me should be, and then there's this anger that's come in and spoiled this real perfect me picture that I'm carrying around, and um, so that uh, the the more naturalistic uh, approach, and and I found that. A, a real breath of fresh air when I was first living in Thailand was that there was a much more comfortable sense of of um, of people recognizing, yeah, I'm a pretty angry guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm impatient, and they weren't justifying it, but they were saying, yeah, that's part of the system. They recognized it as a weakness, but they didn't take it as a, a, a something that was so personal or so. Um, or it's something even to be embarrassed about, you know. Because quite often, I mean, I, I sometimes you would feel, "Aren't you embarrassed about that?" And he said, "You know, you, you could see quite clearly that the person wasn't embarrassed. It's just they weren't proud of it, but they had these 
you know, jealous impulses or lustful impulses or angry uh, impulses, and that uh, they knew it was something they needed to work with, but it was it was no big thing. Like just like they were learning the language or, or learning how to crochet or learning how to sew ropes. You know, it's <laughs> something you need to learn about because you can't you can't do it yet. And uh, that was uh, something that would really uh, take me aback. And uh, as Lumpur Sumato was describing here, it was something also that had a big impact for him because it holds up a mirror to your own habits. And you're sort of, uh, you know, you don't even talk about that. Or, like, oh, I don't want to, you want, you want to, you don't yourself to see it, you don't want other people to see it. And uh, and when you're around people that are, are much more open about that or much more comfortable with those things, then it's a, um, it says, oh, I don't have to make such a big deal. I don't have to be so sort of uh, uptight or, or um ashamed or worried it's just oh yeah it's, it needs to be worked on but it's uh, it's not uh, it's not a disaster and it's not it's also not not personal so any questions reflections thoughts Animals can be angry. You ever seen a dog fight? Yeah, uh, it's who's going to be the top dog? Is uh, I've I've been around a dog fight. That they uh, they're fighting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's to it's to. Uh, it's a natural thing. It's like who's going to be the top dog, who's going to submit, and so there's there's a, a lot of snarling and biting, and and uh, it's it's not all posturing. There there's real aggression there, and uh, so yeah, you know, in terms of of pre- uh, uh, an animal as a predator, you know, like a a carnivorous animal, it doesn't hate the thing it's eating. It, it desires it. <laughs> it doesn't care about the feelings. Like a cat doesn't care about the feelings of the mouse, because the cat is a predator. The mouse is the is the victim. Um, so the cat isn't angry with the mouse. But if you have two two tom cats fighting, uh, or two you know, two dogs fighting, you know, that there, there's definite definitely aggression. There's battling, and someone's going someone's going to end up on top, and someone's going to get injured. And, run away or they're going to keel over and die. So it's not entirely a human creation. Feeding it with our thoughts, you know, sitting in the meditation hall thinking, how dare he, he's done it again, he knows I can't stand that, why has he got it in for me? That's human. <laughs> That's a, uh, there's a wonderful book about um, animal psychology and human psychology called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by a uh, a scientist called Robert Sapolsky. Why zebras don't get ulcers. And uh, the um, and humans do. <laughs> it's because if you're a zebra, uh, and he, I, I, uh, I was uh, at a talk he gave at one of these um, uh, mind and life events with the Dalai Lama, and uh, he's a very engaging speaker as well, Robert Sapolsky. And uh, he said, so... A zebra out on the savanna, you know, you are 
uh, a possible foodstuff for a lion. So when you notice that a lion is prowling and is close to you and is now launched its attack, you run. You need stress. You want stress. You want your heart to beat faster. You want maximum adrenaline. So uh, you need to get away from the lion. So your reproductive functions go down, your digestive functions go down, you get as much juice into your muscles as possible, and you go. And there are two results. Either you get away, or you get eaten. And so you only need that hyper-stress uh, reaction for a couple of minutes, because either you'll get away, or you won't. And so then the, uh, the stress reaction for a zebra is, is a survival technique. And then as soon as it's got away and uh, the lion has caught some, uh, some other member of your family, like, <laughs> it's quite interesting that if you've seen these wildlife documentaries, often there's a zebra being gutted by a, a, a pack of lions, you know, a, 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 a pride of lions, and then there's three or four other zebras just sort of happily grazing about 10 yards away. Like, they're just ripping you know, Cousin Harry's guts out. <laughs> You know, why aren't you upset? It's like, mm, just have my breakfast, you know. Because they don't have, apparently, the thinking faculties to say, oh, well, they've got Harry today, but they could be me tomorrow. They're, they're, they haven't got the thinking faculties, whereas human beings, we have. Even if I escape tomorrow, well, what about three months' time? What about, what about next year? So we can project into the future, and we can remember the past. So we get ulcers because we can sustain that stress reaction for weeks. So whereas for a zebra, it needs that to survive, but it's only there for a couple of minutes, and then it fades. We can sustain those stress reactions uh, with our thoughts, with memory and imagination, and so then we get ulcers. We, ha we create, create all kinds of illnesses for ourselves because we can put the body into that... Um, that kind of stressed mode with our thoughts. So similarly with anger, you know, like again, like Lumpur Sumedha was talking about how you know he could he could think of the name of his chief petty officer on the supply ship from the 1950s, and boom, <laughs> there's this day. Yeah, he didn't doesn't mention him by name in the, in the, the the talk, but he he was noticing how something that happened 20 or 30 years ago he could just recreate it. So. That's where the danger comes in, where as human beings we have more of a unique um, problem, set of difficulties or challenges. It's because we remember, we imagine. So then, a, um, a, for most animals, revenge doesn't really occur. <laughs> it's, it's a competing for a resource. Who's going to be the top dog? Uh, who's going to get the food? Uh, <clears throat> who's going to get the mate? Whose territory this is? Uh, and then once the competition's done, then it's over. But uh, as human beings, we, we remember, we resent, we hope, we fear, we want revenge, uh, we regret. So our thinking faculty needs to be worked with. Otherwise, then it extends those emotional reactions over long, long periods of time. And so the sense of self and me as a as a person, and my story, how I've been hurt, or what I should have done, or what I shouldn't have done, that terrible thing that I did that I can never, I can never repay, I never repair, um, it's, that unrequitable romance, so it was so wonderful, and now it's lost forever. 
we can create that and build up a picture of who we are out of those ideas and memories. So one of the most important aspects of meditation then is reading those habits of self-creation, how we create this narrative self, me and my story, my past, my future, and what, uh, what I am, who I am, uh, what's good, what's bad about me, my judgments about, of the world around me, my family, the people I live with, and so on. If there, if there isn't a perspective, the sense of self is, is made concrete, and solid, and, and becomes a prison. So that uh, what, and part of the teachings about timelessness that Lumpur is focusing on here is continually recognizing that's a memory, that's an expectation, that's a plan. It's what's here now. So in a sense, it's, it's training the mind not to create ulcers, <laughs> not to dwell in its recreations of the past, its imagining of the future, but to keep coming to the reality of the, the present experience and to, uh, to use that as a direct way of, of not feeding the sense of self and how in the moment awareness is not a person. The, the mind is awake, the, 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 the mind knows the personal qualities of a body, a personality, a story, but it's not a person. That which knows the person is not a person, I would say. I declare <laughs> that, that that awareness is not, it's not a person, just like Lumpur said over and over. An example I, I use regularly is like gravity. You know, gravity is not personal, we experience it, but we don't create it. It's not an achievement. I don't say who you know, who here has achieved gravity. Doesn't apply. So Lumpur is saying exactly the same about awareness. Who you know, you don't achieve awareness. It's not an attainment. It's a quality that's present. And, and like gravity is not personal. It's felt here through the agency of this individual life, but it's not a personal thing. It's just a, a natural law, a natural quality, a universal quality. So. When there's uh, that letting go of time, then it also helps, it supports the letting go of self-view and the, the creation of a uh, I and me and mine. Okay. And that was the end of that talk. So we'll finish there.